here we are, we're back again. So if you're just joining me, my name is Christy. This is Murder, Mystery, and History. So for those of you tuning back, you'll recall that last week I released a mini episode, so to speak, on TKI assessments and my worlds colliding much like George Costanza. But today, we're back to our regular format. Are you ready? Because I'm so ready. I'm very excited, actually. This is something that I have read about. Oh, let's see. I would have been a preteen. Keep in mind, I was a really weird kid. Really weird. And come to think of it, too, like this case, it's no surprise why I'm going into mortuary science. Let's do it. So, it's October. It's literally my spirit month. It's my favorite month. It's going to be a busy month. I'm starting my embalming practicum this month. Wish me luck. It's going to be busy, a bit exciting, um, a whole lot of anxiety on my part, but busy and exciting. Since it's October, I'm going to try and do murders, mysteries, and history that are based in, I guess, more spooky terms. That's such a bad way to put it, but here we are. So, what keeps you up at night? What is the one thing that keeps you up? It could be a nightmare. It could be a murder you've heard about. It could literally be anything. It could be the dog barking next door. And what I'm going to talk about today is there's a lot of people who witnessed or heard things, but nobody did anything. So, let's get to it. Like I said, this is something I've read about numerous times. I've been reading about this since I was a preteen in particular. So in a sense, this is kind of another bonus round like we did with Lizzie Borden, but it's kind of is, it's kind of not. So let's talk Jack the Ripper or the Whitechapel murderer or Leather Apron. These were all names given to Jack the Ripper. And if you haven't heard about Jack the Ripper, I'd be very surprised. Like he's pretty, he's pretty famous. There's actually a type of degree you can get just for Jack the Ripper. And it's called Ripperology. We'll, we'll get into that. So in terms of victims, there's five victims that are confirmed to be Jack the Ripper's victims. And I'm going to go through the story and talk about the victims in particular, uh, post-mortem, of course. Um, but before, before I even start talking about the victims, I want to talk about Whitechapel in London in 1888, because to understand the Jack the Ripper case, you need to understand what Whitechapel was like. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible in short. So this in 1888 is when these murders happened, but Whitechapel was not a rich area. It wasn't even a modest earning area. It was a very poor and impoverished area. It had a population of around 80,000 people and housing and working conditions were horrible at best. And it's estimated that 55% of the children born in this area lived and died there. So that tells you something, that over half the population couldn't get out of Whitechapel. And those who got out of Whitechapel were lucky. And if you're a woman in Whitechapel, you didn't have very many options. You had lack of options. Many women were forced into prostitution just to survive. 
In short, this was a slum. If you were to get out of Whitechapel, you were lucky. Because not everyone did. In fact, as mentioned, most people didn't. So, as I said, there's five known victims. In total, though, there were 11. But five are the canonical murders, meaning they're the ones that we can absolutely attest that Jack the Ripper did this. But when we get into it, it's very possible that more, more women were murdered and never discovered. In such horrible living conditions, how easy do you think it would be to hide a body? So let's talk about the canonical five. So Mary Ann Nichols was five foot three and 45 years old when she was murdered. She was a mother of five children. However, she and her husband separated in 1880. Mary did not have her children. Her husband took full and complete custody of these children, which in that time frame is odd because usually the men would run out on the woman and that's why they would be forced into prostitution. However, what ended up happening is she and her husband, according to her ex-husband, separated because of her heavy drinking. She ended up getting quite a rap sheet, drunk in public, disorderly conduct, and prostitution. Mary was allocated an allowance from her ex-husband, but as soon as he found out she was a prostitute, he stopped making payments. Whatever she earned from prostitution went back into a bottle. And if you're wondering, did Mary Ann Nichols try to take her husband to court for the allowance that she was supposed to be getting? Well, she did, actually, and she lost the case because it was found out that she was prostituting herself and since she was doing an illegal means to make money, why should her husband pay her anything? This is literally what the court decided. Not the fact that like, you know, anyways. And this isn't to say anybody who's practicing sex work, I'm looking down on them because I'm not. But you have to understand in this time frame, it was very looked, up, looked down upon and these women were considered fallen women. I'm not judging you. If you do sex work, you do you, boo. I applaud you. I don't have the confidence to do that kind of thing, if being honest with each other. So, whatever she earned from prostitution went right back into the bottle. By 1887, she was openly sleeping on the streets. In short, Mary Ann Nichols may have been an easy target. In 1888, Jack came a-calling. So, August 31st was the last time anyone saw Mary alive. She was short on money for a boarding room or lodging house, if you will, and she went to go work to get the money. She was last seen walking down Osborne Street at 2.30 a.m. This was an hour before she was murdered. She was visibly drunk. All she said to a witness is, I've had my lodging money three times today, and I've spent it. I need to get more. Visibly drunk. Around 3.40 a.m., a car man named Charles Allen discovered what he thought to be like a blanket or something on the ground. It wasn't. It was Marianne Nichols, dead. When she was found initially, her skirt was above her knees, her eyes were open, and her left hand was touching the gate of a stable entrance. The scene is set. Jack has made his first murder. She was found around 150 yards from the London Hospital. So, her skirt was pulled down to cover her genitalia, 
A constable was found to look at this discovery. What's interesting to note is there's zero evidence on the scene, allegedly. There were no blood trails. Not a single person heard a single thing. So let's talk postmortem. And when I'm talking postmortem, what postmortem means for those of you who don't know is after death. So death has happened. So Marianne Nichols had bruises on both sides of her face. The thing is, these bruises could have been from a thumb or a fist. The medical examiner at the time wasn't sure, but they were big. Her throat was slit twice, but with such force and so deeply, it reached her vertebrae, which you have to cut fairly deeply. If you actually feel on the back of your head, on your neck, like at the bottom of your head, basically at the base of your skull, if you go down, you can feel I don't know if you can feel, but anyways, so your vertebrae is at the back, very back. So it's generally what the vertebrae we're talking here generally keeps your head up or holds your head up. So in order to cut that far back, you have to be using force. You, I, I don't even know how much force you have to use. In short, her head, her throat was so, slit so badly that her head was almost off her body. That's the best way to describe it. Her genitals had been stabbed twice. Her abdomen had been sliced more than twice. These incisions were so deep, her bowels were coming out of her stomach, like out of her abdomen. And there were four cuts that were down the right side of her body. And these wounds were estimated to be the same knife all over her body. It would have taken five minutes, which is terrifying to me, to complete these cuts. It's estimated that when she was killed, she had a hand over her mouth and her throat was slashed, causing instant death. Thank God for her. The rest of the incisions were done if she was dead, which after death, because of the heart ceasing to beat, there'd be no more blood splatter. That's why there wasn't blood splatter all over the scene. And it's interesting to note that all the cuts were in a downward thrust. September 8th. Annie Chapman, 47. Similar to Mary Ann, Mary Ann Nichols had a fondness for alcohol. She was five feet tall. And it's interesting to me so far that most of his victims, well, these, the two victims, were less than 5'5". Five, five. In terms of height. So we'll, we'll get to that. I have a theory about that. So, Marianne Nichols and Annie Chapman had a fondness for alcohol. The difference is, Annie's family tried to get her off the drink, but to no avail. When her family moved out of London, she stayed. It's interesting to note, though, and this is actually really bizarre. This is a weird coincidence. Her father committed suicide by slitting his own throat. It's weird. It's really weird. And it's noted, when she wasn't drinking, she was this wonderful, warm, loving person. She was also a mother. Her son was born disabled and left in an institution for the disabled. This would have been her final child, her third child. Which, institutions in 18th century England were awful. We'll, we'll get to how fucked up those places were in a future episode. Um, it was not, it, it was horrible to be put in there. It was a death sentence in essence, but I'm getting ahead of myself. 
So Anne was able to sober, become sober for her children until 1881. Her eldest child died. Annie and her husband separated. He later died due to alcohol-related disease. And the only reason that Annie found out is her alimony payments stopped coming. And when she went to find out, she found out he had died. By 1888, Annie was desperately trying to avoid prostitution, but she needed the money to survive. At 5.35 a.m., she was seen with a man with dark hair, a brown hat, and possibly a dark coat. This was the last time anyone saw Annie. Was this Jack the Ripper? However, this timeline doesn't add up with what a witness said. At 5.15 a.m., a tenant of Hanbury Street was using the bathroom. Bathrooms in lower class areas in the 1800s were still outside. The tenant heard a woman say, no, 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 and heard a sound of something falling against the fence. He didn't investigate. Hmm. At 6 a.m., Annie was found. Her body was lying on the ground near a doorway. Her head was six inches from the steps to this property that the person who was using the outhouse lived in. And similar to Marianne Nichols, Annie had two deep slash wounds in her throat. Her abdomen was mutilated. Similar blade design in the wounds. What's different here is that there was blood splattering, and some of the blood splattering was 18 inches above the ground. What's also different here is a bloody leather apron was found, a comb, some mus muslin, which is a type of fabric, and a torn envelope were found near her body. But to me, what's really heartbreaking in Annie's case is she had been diagnosed with a lung condition, and she wouldn't have lived longer than a month with this lung condition. Jack the Ripper stole literally the last month of her life. In terms of postmortem, her left arm was placed along her breast. Her legs were drawn up and her knees outward. Think. It's called a frog position when you're laying down. So if you're laying down and you put your knees up and you spread them out, it's called the frog position because your feet have to be in the same. Your feet have to be touching. And it's generally when you're in this position is when they're checking your cervix if you're pregnant and they're seeing how far along or like they're seeing if you're in labor yeah fun fact anyways so her neck her legs were drawn up and her knees are outward her face was so badly swollen and her tongue was so swollen as well her neck wounds well they almost wrapped around her head her neck like a necklace again the incision in her neck reached her vertebrae so she was almost beheaded by force and by how hard and deep these these wounds were so but the thing that's different here is her actual stomach was placed on her shoulder her left shoulder on her right shoulder her small intestines and parts of her uterus and her bladder and parts of her general genitals were missing it's interesting to note that the medical examiner reported that she died due to asphyxiation Prior to the throat being cut. She was held down, he determined, by the chin Well, Jack the Ripper did his work. So, asphyxiation, if you don't know, is when you die of a lack of blood, die from lack of blood, die from the lack of air. 
So there's like some celebrities who practiced auto-erotic asphyxiation have died. Um, I forget his name, but he was in Kill Bill. And he practiced auto-erotic asphyxiation. And he actually ended up hanging himself in a closet. Yeah, he was in Kill Bill. I forget his name. But he was like the head boss in Kill Bill that um, Uma Thurman had to kill. Anyways. So, when we talk about this, this is why the face would be swollen and her tongue would be swollen. So, it, it's, it's so bizarre how Jack the Ripper has ripped out these organs and he's placing them strategically on these bodies. So let's talk about Elizabeth Stride. She was a, a Swedish immigrant who was 44 and 5 foot 2. Interesting, isn't it? We got 5 foot 3, 5 foot 5 2. She wasn't a mother. Her husband died in 1884 and she had a stutter. She tried so hard to avoid prostitution. On September 29th, she was seen with various different men. However, on September 30th, a constable had seen Elizabeth Stride between 12.35 and 12.45 a.m. She was speaking to a man but remarked, No, not tonight, some other night. Which in itself is curious that the constable knew she had said this, thought nothing of it, and walked away. She was found at 1 a.m. in front of the working man's educational club. Her blood was still flowing from her neck wound and her body was still warm. So we have this time frame here, 12.35 and 12.45 a.m. So was she talking to the Ripper? Had the constable had gone over and seen what was up, would Elizabeth have survived that night? I actually don't know, but it's an interesting thought to have in your head, right? So let's talk post-mortem. When she was found, her face was turned to a wall. Her left arm was extended and a pack of cough drops was in her left hand, which I find very interesting. Her right arm was over her stomach. The back of it and her wrist had clotted blood on them. Her body was still warm. Mud was found matted on her hair. On her shoulders, there were bruises. And it's important to note that she was the only one that was not mutilated. So when we look at the rest of Jack the Ripper's victims, they're all horribly mutilated. And you might be saying to yourself, well, if she's not mutilated, it must not have been Jack the Ripper. Or you're thinking, he got caught. He got caught. That's why. Well, here's the thing. She's found at 1 a.m. So we have a, a time of death of 15 minutes. So what probably ended up happening <clears throat> is he killed her, but someone was in his line of sight coming towards him and he had to go. He couldn't mutilate the body. He was interrupted. That's why something interrupted him and he feared for his safety or he feared he was going to get caught. That's why Elizabeth Stride was not mutilated. But what's interesting is Catherine Eddowes died the same night. And I want to say it's within an hour. Half an hour, an hour, is when she died. So, because he was interrupted with Elizabeth Stride, he had to find a new victim. 
He wasn't done that night. So let's talk Catherine Eddowes. She was 45 and five feet. She was a mother. She was a wife. However, she also liked liquor. She abandoned her family for the liquor. Her ex-husband actually took out aliases and hid their sons from her. She knew how to get a hold of her daughter, not her sons. Figure that one out. On September 29th, she was arrested and thrown in the drunk tank and was let out when she sobered up. September 29th. On September, on September 30th, she met Jack. Witnesses say they saw Catherine around 1.35 a.m. speaking to a man in dark clothing. She was found an hour later in the southwest corner of Mitre Square by a police officer. So, just to kind of set the scene here, we have this 15-minute time frame of 12.45 to 1 a.m. when Elizabeth Stride is found dead, murdered. Catherine was found at 2.30 in the morning. So, you have to understand that because he was interrupted, this is why. And there's a reason I keep saying he's interrupted. So, postmortem, what did she look like? She was on her back, her head was turned towards her shoulder, her arms on the side of her body like they fell, but both of her palms were raised and she had a thimble on her right hand. Her dress was up and above her abdomen. Her right leg bent at the thigh as well as the knee. Her throat was cut. Her intestines were placed on her right shoulder and they were smeared with fecal matter. A piece of this fecal matter and intestines was placed between her body and her left arm. Her right ear was cut and her body was still warm. So it's interesting to me that he's gained speed now in terms of how quickly he's how quickly he's gone from one victim to the next and how quickly he's ripping his victims apart for lack of better words which is why he was called the ripper so mary jane kelly she is the last known victim what's interesting to me is her age all of Jack the Ripper's victims have been in their 40s up until this point. She was 25. She was 5 foot 7. So now his his preference in victims has changed. And I'm not sure why it's changed. There's at least a 20 year age gap between his victims now. So Mary Jane Kelly she was a widow, 25 years old and a widow, and there was no pension, there was nothing. She had to support herself. It's been reported that Mary Jane Kelly hated her life. She didn't want to do this anymore. She didn't want to be a prostitute. She wanted a safe life. And I don't blame her. Wanting a safe life is a basic human right, in my opinion. She wanted to leave Whitechapel. She couldn't. She didn't have the money. So, around 11.45 p.m., Mary Jane was entertaining a man with a thick mustache, blotches on his face, and he had beer. Mary Jane was singing. So, 
she had rented a room and she had people above and below her. So her neighbor downstairs heard her singing up until 1.30 a.m. Sorry, pardon me. So her downstairs neighbor had heard her singing until 1.30 a.m. when she went to bed. And that was whatever, she was entertaining. She was trying to sing for her supper, for lack of better words. Pardon that very long um, pregnant pause you just had there. I had a really big yawn, I'm so sorry. Um, moving forward, so the room above Mary Jane had a tenant and her upstairs neighbor had noted around 3.30 and 4 a.m. she heard the word murder but thought nothing of it because this is Whitechapel after all. You hear these kind of things all the time. Which get to that. This would have been November 7th. Well, November 7th, November 8th. So, on November 8th, Her landlord came to collect the rent. When the door was opened to her room, and this is like pretty brutal, so if you have a really weak stomach, well, I mean, this is like the episode where if you have a weak stomach, it's not probably a great episode. Um, probably should have said that in the beginning, but here we are. So, when her landlord came to collect the rent, when he got into the room, he found Mary Jane dead. She had been dead for around nine hours prior to discovery her body was the most mutilated body she was the most mutilated victim of jack the ripper because they're in a confined room he doesn't have to stop nobody can come and interrupt him he doesn't have to worry about getting caught because he was inside it was perfect for him this was his playground it was the end of mary jane's life the autopsy on her body was actually the longest, taking almost three hours. It was Victorian England. You have to give them credit for at least trying to do an autopsy. So, postmortem. When she was found, she was found naked in the middle of her bed. Her head was inclined to the left side of the bed, but her head was also turned on the left cheek. Her left arm was close to the body, with the forearm flexed at a right angle, lying across the abdomen. Her right arm was slightly abducted, her fingers were clenched, her legs were wide apart, and her whole abdominal cavity, which it would be, your abdominal cavity would be, I would say like one or two, one or two, one to three inches below your nipples to about your hip bones is your abdominal cavity. So this, this houses your organs, like your stomach, your liver, your intestines, your kidneys, that kind of thing. So, all of her viscera is missing, and that would be organs. Her breasts were cut off. Her arms were mutilated. Her poor face was mutilated by several deep, jagged wounds so badly that they couldn't recognize her. So, the viscera was found around her body organs. So, her uterus and her kidneys with a breast were under her head. The other breast was by the right foot, the liver between her feet, her intestines by the right side, and spleen by the left side of her body. The flaps that were open 
so when you're cutting into the body, you have to make flaps, right? So to get into the intestinal, intestinal, abdominal cavity, he would have had to do flaps. So the flaps that he had used to get inside of her abdominal cavity, he had cut them up, cut them off in large strips. So these large strips or straps were found removed from her body on the table. Her neck was so badly hacked, it reached her vertebrae, much like all of the victims. Now, it's interesting that the only organ that's missing here was her heart. Generally speaking, there may be other victims, but the time frame and how they died aren't similar in a motive. So, there might be up to additionally six murders. So when we look deeper into the case, we see that there's a variety of letters that were sent to police. Generally, these letters, like when the case broke out, people just sent letters to hope that they'd go down in history. Not all of these letters were considered from Jack the Ripper. The three that make the most news are called the Dear Boss Letter, Saucy Jack, and From Hell. So, I'm going to give you the too long, didn't read version of these letters, and we'll go from there. So, when we look at the first letter called Dear Boss, basically it's telling the police he'll stop once he gets caught, and perhaps the next murder he'll send the victim's ears to the police. He also states he has a sharp knife, and he can't wait to get back to work. Second is called Saucy Jack, where it states that he got caught in the middle of assaulting a victim, so he had to go get another victim. If you think of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, that would fit the time frame. And exactly what the letter says. That's why I kept saying he got interrupted. Because we have some sort of tangible evidence, and we don't really know if these letters are from Jack the Ripper. But that's pretty damning if they are. So finally, <clears throat> pardon me, we have the From Hell letter. It states that Jack ate the kidney of one of his victims, and it was sent with a preserved human kidney. And what's interesting enough is it's signed, Catch Me If You Can. So, the theories that go around is, are that these letters are all hoaxes, and it was meant to sensationalize the case, or they were pranks, or people who just wanted to be part of this hysteria that was Jack the Ripper. But... I mean, realistically, when we talk about Jack the Ripper, it's hard to even get a sense of where to start because there's so many what-ifs and unknowns. Like, if we talk about who the suspects are, it could have been anybody. That's the problem. So when we talk about suspects, there's a general consensus by some that it was a member of the British royal family at the time. Then it's the royal family's doctor. Then it's somebody who's even remotely related to any kind of aristocrat. Then it's a doctor. Then it's a butcher. Then it's the farmer down the street. There are people who have spent their whole lives studying Jack the Ripper. There are actual degrees you can get that are called Ripperology. That is the actual name for people who just study Jack the Ripper. What's interesting to me 
about this whole case is every victim had organs missing except for Elizabeth Stratton. But each of the victims had different organs missing. Each of the victims were different heights, which is bizarre to me. What's also similarly bizarre to me is the fact that his very last victim, he completely changed what he was looking for in a victim. Similarly, like we see at the beginning, four out of five of the victims are in their 40s, and the very last one was 27. 24, pardon me. So, it's hard to take sense of what really happened. And I don't think that we'll ever know who Jack the Ripper was. There certainly have been claims. I know there's, uh, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but he had claimed to have found his great-great-grandfather how many times over. He claimed to have found these diaries that explicitly state that his grandfather was Jack the Ripper. I don't know if we'll ever know. It's hard to say. It's hard to know. But there's one thing that we do know about Jack the Ripper. He terrorized Whitechapel. But after Mary Jane Kelly died, we don't hear any more about him. And it's either he died or he finally got what he wanted. There are some serial killers who have a goal. And once they meet that goal, they don't kill again. Did Jack meet his goal? It's an interesting premise when you think about it. It's an interesting case no matter what you think. And it is a grisly case. More so than anything. But it's just, it's one of those things that keeps you awake at night because there's so many suspects. And everybody has a good reason to be a suspect. That's really what the issue is here. So, are we back to our regular format? I think so. If there is a mystery that you want me to talk about, you email me murder, mystery, and history at gmail.com. If there is some random fact in history that you think people want to know about, murder, mystery, and history at gmail.com. If there is a murder you want me to ramble on about, I got you. Let's do it, baby. You just gotta let me know. Murder, mystery, and history at gmail.com. The best praise I can ever get is if you share this podcast with a friend and they like it. So if you like it, share. Also, so last time I spoke on podcasts, I gave the wrong places to follow me. Isn't that ridiculous? How ridiculous is that? So I had said that I was on a different platform and I actually wasn't. And I'm so sorry, you guys. So here's where you can find me or follow me to get new episodes. Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Overcasts, Beaker, CastBox, and Pocket Cast Radio Public. I said Stitcher last time, and I'm afraid I am mistaken. I am not on Stitcher. However, like I said, you can follow me on Radio Public, 
pocket casts, cast box, beaker, overcast, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and Spotify. So, with that, I shall bid you adieu, and I cannot wait till we see each other again.